Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is January 7th. Happy New Year for those of you who I haven't seen since the beginning of the year. I think everyone should now, on January 7th, take a deep breath. We've all lived through this attempted coup or riot or whatever you want to describe it uh, in Washington, D.C. yesterday, January 6th. January 5th seems like ancient history, but on January 5th, of course, the Senate changed hands. The Democrats won both uh, Senate seats in Washington, D.C. So uh, economics is going to be back on the agenda once we get rid of our reality television president. Uh, And increasingly, Washington, D.C. is addressing uh, the economic policy of the Biden administration. Today, stocks rally as Apparently, Wall Street's focus remains on the stimulus. It's assumed, of course, that uh, uh, the Democrats now, given that they control the Senate, will spend more money. That $2,000 stimulus seems more and more realistic for those of us who are lucky to earn under, I think it's $120,000. And one thing I guarantee, I don't guarantee many things, but I guarantee at some point a Republican senator particularly We'll quote Milton Friedman, or should we call him Friedman, who famously said there is no such thing as a free lunch in an argument against um, the Biden stimulus, Biden economic policy when it comes to addressing the impact of COVID and the the broad economic crisis that has hit the world and particularly the United States in 2020. So to celebrate there is no such thing as a free lunch, we are going to talk about free lunches and economics today. Uh, My guest is Tom Bergen. He is the author, the uh, London-based journalist, works at Reuters and the FT. He's the author of a really interesting new book appropriately called Free Lunch Thinking, How Economics Ruins the Economy. Tom, Milton Friedman, or should we call him Friedman? He looks as if, uh, and, 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 and don't accuse me of being anti-fat people, but he looks as if he's had quite a few free lunches. Of course, he's not around at the moment. Uh, why do you, you call your book, uh, why do you call your book Free Lunch Thinking? Well, hi, Andrew. It's, it's great to be on the show. Um, the the yes Milton gets a gets a little bit fried in the book uh, I, I must say the uh, he, he's obviously famous for that show, I think yeah, I, well, well, I, I I think I think if you read the book you you will agree that that, that is deservedly so because he could certainly be served up for lots of free lunches yeah. well the, the the thing is that if you take a lot of what he said and what a lot of economists say the 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 standard rules or prescriptions they offer for managing one's economy. Realistically, these are promising people free lunches. There are things like, you know, if you cut taxes, 
taxes, you will have you know increases in revenue. If you cut red tape and regulations, you'll magically have a cost-free uh, increase in economic growth. And these are the sort of economic mantras which uh, have been you know taken out and and marched out, particularly at times of crisis. So in a situation like we have now, when the economy is you know really struggling through the the COVID crisis, hopefully almost at the end of that, um, that then people look around for you know what can we do to get the economy moving again. It happened during the, in the post-financial crisis period. And people look to these things. Okay, we can cut taxes on corporations. We can we can reduce the rules uh, that, that govern corporations. And sort of magically, we'll get some free lunch out of this. But the truth is, there aren't any easy answers. And I do find it quite ironic that the a lot of times the people who like to talk about uh, you know, there being no free lunches actually are hoping to convince people to do things on the basis that they're easy solutions. It's a great book, Tom. And uh, one of the the ironies, the book is full of un uh, ironies, both intentional and unintentional, is that it's, it's a book which I think is quite critical of the professional economist profession and perhaps even the idea of professional economics. And yet it begins with a quote from the high priest of economics, a guy who never seems to do any bad from any position, particularly from the left. We had Zach Carter on the show a few months ago who wrote prize-winning book, The Price of Peace, uh, a new biography and a, an acclaimed biography of Keynes. You quote Keynes, you say, uh, the ideas of economists and political philosophers, both who they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else, practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences are usually slaves to some defunct economist. Are you suggesting having that Keynes quote at the beginning of the book that the ideology of economics is ubiquitous, whether we like it or not, that we're all slaves, to use that word carefully, uh, to some economic theory or other? I think absolutely, and I think across many areas of life, uh, we obviously what comes to mind is areas like tax policy and, and broad economic policy, but also increasingly in areas of health policy. That uh, the 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 mechanisms or the, the methods by which go the governments try to improve people's health, either helping them to eat he healthily or smoke less, or even in, in terms of how we seek to tackle climate change, increasingly rely upon economic theory. So sometimes these things seem arcane. It's like, oh, you know, this is something from the world of academe. No, it's this is something that's that's been let loose out into the open and is being used every day to govern, you know, really billions of people's lives. And I think that um, we don't often really dig into these and look at at the background to them. So, you know, my, my background is as an investigative financial journalist. So it's a case of, you know, looking at, at, at theses and really digging into the background of them. And what's really interesting with the economics profession is the way in which economists so frequently misrepresent the evidence on economic issues. And I think that really comes from the fact that economics 
although it tries to portray itself as a science and it, it, it claims to have the status of science, it doesn't perform like other sciences. It doesn't start with observing the world and then trying to explain what's happening. It starts with theory. It starts with a framework for understanding human nature and the way in which the world works. And then it applies that. And then when, and, but when the evidence doesn't support that, that framework, the evidence is either ignored or denied very, very frequently. So all economists are ideologists. Uh, you're, you're, uh, and they're all political, uh, at least uh, according to to your book. Uh, here's a, an interesting photo: President Trump awarding uh, the Presidential Medal of Freedom to an economist called Arthur Laffer. It looks as if Trump is actually giving Laffer a haircut, which would probably be appropriate given the length of Laffer's hair and the nature of his ideology. Interestingly enough, Tom, the first substantive chapter in the book addresses what you call the latter conundrum. Do lower taxes help growth? People like Laffer, of course, have argued that they do. What's your conclusion about the relationship between lower taxes and broad economic growth? Well, one of the things I, I, I in, in the book, you know, I, I spent a, a quite a bit of time with Arthur Laffer in Nashville, um, just trying to did understand. You pair, like, uh, did you... <laughs> I didn't. We had a couple of you know fun meals together, and he's he's great company. He, you know, he's and he's you know very impressive in terms of his energy lunch? level. Who played for lunch? <laughs> I hope the he... lunch. The lunch was was free for me. I I didn't pay. Definitely, Arthur Laffer paid for both lunches. Actually, you got some value out of it. You got so, your <laughs> in the book. So, I, I, is, does he seem as offensive as he looks in some of these photos? Well, he's 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 he, you know he's a very gregarious person, and you can see when you visit his house, he has pictures of of himself with politicians across. Uh, the financial spectrum. He, you know, is someone who seems to be, you know, very popular. And he, he's a, you know, he, he's got a likability, which I think is, you know, been part of the reason along as with his strong recollection of data, et cetera, and a sense of humor that has really helped market his, uh, his, his economics. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the whole idea of the Laffer curve, which I, I've met I've, over the past several weeks, I've been talking to, to, to numerous people have told me, you know, when I was at school or at college, I was taught that this was a real thing that, you know, the Laffer curve really described uh, the taxation issues. Now the, uh, the, but the, 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 the whole, ideas is really you know it doesn't have any any basis to it and in many respects you know I, I look at the book I dig into this background of, of how we came to believe this and what what were the stories that justified it and one of them is looking back at what happened in the United States during the first world war and how the, the United States paid for the war uh, and that involved putting very high taxes on the very wealthy and the 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 unwinding of those taxes in the 1920s has been part of the folklore of supply side economics and the description of, of and the depiction of that as Andrew Mellon the then Treasury uh, Secretary and one of the richest men in, in America, um, creating the 1920s boom by reducing taxes on the very wealthy. And, but of course, the, the data, when you really look at it in, 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 in an objective way over a longer period, you can see this is all just nonsense, that kind of interpretation of it. The idea that cutting taxes on the wealthy makes them much more productive, which 
then helps the economy. That's the theory behind it. The truth is, it wasn't true then, that first great example of supply-side economics. And it's not been true in any period where this is claimed to be the effect of reducing taxes. And you know, when you look in and you really dig into the mechanisms of this, because this is one of the things I've tried to do in the book, saying, okay, we're, 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 we're looking for this way to make the economy grow quicker. So how can we do that? And the idea is, okay, well, we'll cut taxes. Economic theory says that will work. And, but of course, it's not, a, it's not a, you do that and coincidentally this happens. It's meant to, there's meant to be a mechanism. This prompts somebody to change their behavior. And then that change in the behavior creates the increase in growth. But what we see in the, again and again, although people will sometimes try and find a correlation between the policy and the growth, the, in, the inter, intermediary steps are never connected. It's like the engine, the bits of the engine are not connected. So we just simply don't see people changing their behavior in response to things like tax, chain, tax changes in the way that uh, economic theory and economic theorists, particularly like Arthur Laffer, Laffer tell us that, uh, that, 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 that it, it does happen. Uh, one, um, Arthur, one of Arthur La Laff Laffer's first cousins in ideological terms when it comes to taxes and laziness and productivity uh, is uh, another economist. Uh, is it Martin Feldstein? Another guy who yes. if he's had too many free lunches. Mar Marty um, Feldstein, indeed. Uh, uh, who, who uh, in, in, in another of your chapters, you address the question of do high taxes make us lazy? Um, I think this is an appropriate question today, uh, Tom. Uh, Elon Musk has, I think, officially become the wealthiest man in the world. He's He's gone above Jeff Bezos. He's worth, what, $200 billion, probably the first trillion dollar man. It seems the wealthier people like Bezos and, um, and Musk become, the harder they work. The idea of a Musk or a Bezos or a Bill Gates being lazy is absurd. So... Uh, why should high taxes make us lazy? And, and, and what's the argument there and how do you explode it? Okay, the, the, the argument is relatively simple. It all comes down to demand and supply curves. And of course, this is one of the fundamental problems with economics, that it sees every financial transaction in terms of a supply and demand curve. So the theory is um, we as, as people, as workers, are you know, suppliers of labor. And the supply curve for any product or service, including labor, is upward sloping. So if you increase the price, then people will supply more of it. And so consequently, if you make work more remunerative, now that can be by increasing wages, but also, of course, by cutting taxes, so your real wage increases, your net wage, um, that if you cut taxes, people will contribute more work. And that could be in additional hours, or as Martin Feldstein claimed, in people working harder. Now, Feldstein claims to have proven this. Feldstein's a very interesting case because he started well, they out- They've proven it, right? Every economist claims that they've proven- It's true, but, but well, here's the thing, but when you look at what that proof really is, then, then I think it really shows the, the, the flow in the thinking. Martin Feldstein said, that he had shown that reducing taxes on the wealthy made the work wealthy work harder because what he discovered was the wealthy got wealthier. So he was he was he just correlated wealthy people getting wealthier with wealthy people working harder. Now there's a certain logic to that. I can understand that somebody might come to that conclusion, but when you really stand back and look at all the facts 
it's a very, very difficult uh, yeah. thesis to, to well, hold. Why didn't, why didn't Feldstein just read Weber's Protestant ethic to understand why people work hard? It's more complicated than just making money. Let's let's move on because there's a lot to cover. Uh, another economist, another claim about money making us better managers. What's the role of money in your mind, Tom, in, um, in economist delusion about our behavior? You know, the, the current mess that we're in, uh, in the area of executive pay, really stems from intellectual discussions and, and, and so-called advances in the late 1970s and 80s by people like Jensen, who were really trying to solve a problem that didn't exist. Jensen was a managerial economist, so he was interested in how you take economic theory and apply that in businesses, as opposed to, for example, using economic theory to, you know, improve fiscal policy. Um, and he was interesting. He thought, you know, we could use economic theory to make companies more efficient and work better. And the, the, he was looking at a time after the stock market had been languishing, you know, not performing very well uh, for a period of years. And he was saying this showed, because markets were right, markets were perfect, this showed that there was a problem with business. Of course, there's a, there's a the starting flaw to think that the that, that markets are, are always right. But he he he, had, he made that 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 judgment. He said, well, the stock market's not performing great. The, the, the stock, there are low price earnings ratios on the on, on, on equities. So consequently, this means companies are doing something wrong. Then he looked at companies and, and could see, oh, well, look, managers are not being paid in a very, you know, ver their income is not very variable and linked to the financial outcome of the companies, the, particularly the share price. And he said, well, there's, there it is. There, there's your problem. You know, you, share prices are not going up because managers are not incentivized to make the shares go up. And, you know, the, the, one of the, the key problems with this theory was you could, you know, I can understand how in 1979, at that moment in time, he, he might, if he looked at a very narrow framework, he could come up with that idea. But if you, if he just stepped back a few meters, he could see that realistically, you'd had a period from the in the post-war period, and actually, if you go back to the 1930s, you had a massive drop in real terms in executive pay, and then stagnant executive pay for decades. And this was a period through which, you know, U.S. Cor the corporate world had its strongest strongest period ever. You know, profits grew, corporations grew, you know, and performed incredibly well through the 1950s and 1960s even though executive pay was stagnant. So the idea that not having, you know, pay that was directly linked to share prices, uh, that, uh, that, that it wasn't very variable uh, and, and ever rising as it is, uh, has been over recent decades, you know, this, this, this didn't have any track record. Track record. There wasn't that long-term data. So moving forward then to the 1980s and 1990s, I mean, companies, you know, really just just went for this idea. And so, of course, did investors. They said, right, we've got a problem here. You know, they, you know, managers are not being given given the right price signals. They're not being incentivized to do the things and achieve the things that we want, which are largely uh, higher share prices. And uh, it, 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 I think, it was really partly in, in the, you know, late 1970s that people's general perception of the world, it was skepticism of government and increasing faith in markets. And people thought, right, well, we could use market signals to achieve a better outcome on the part of executives. You know, 
But I have to say, I mean, uh, the idea that in 1980, that, you know, that chief executives, that you just suddenly decide, yeah, chief executives are just as incredibly lazy people who, if you don't, you know, really give them a big, you know, carrot to drag them along, they're going to slouch you off. They won't actually innovate new products. They won't engage in hard conversations with unions. Uh, you know, that, that idea, I, I think it's just very, I, I, having covered companies, the idea that the chief executives are the kind of people who, who by nature, who if, if they're not going to make an extra million dollars next year, are just going to sit in their hands. That is that is just a very strange idea. But that was the idea that drove people like Jensen to come up with and advocate for a fundamental shift in the way the chief executives were paid and creating the opportunity for them to really enrich themselves at a level that hadn't been seen since the 1920s and early 1930s. So another bad mistaken idea which is compounding economic inequality and corrupting society one of the big issues i think in the biden administration inevitable issue in terms of the debate is a debate about a minimum wage about why and how people work and above all else the relationship between the minimum wage and the number of people employed Another myth that you explode is the Stigler, not Stiglitz, but the Stigler hypothesis uh, about whether or not minimum wage legislation costs jobs. Another, another myth, uh, Tom? Uh, absolutely. And I would say one of the more shameful episodes on the part of the economics profession. This was you know, a, a, an example of a situation where economists decided uh, because uh, you know the world all financial transactions are are captured by uh, you know rising supply curves and, and downward uh, demand curves that an in increase in the minimum wage or the imposition of a minimum wage must cut jobs if you look at the demand and supply curve by raising the the wage rate the official wage rate you will reduce the demand for labor this was a held as an article of certainty and economists believe that uh, for a very long period of time many still do um, but they did so in the, in the total absence of evidence they continued to uh, to advocate to governments. And this what's, what's interesting about this is this was not a right-left issue, like many of the things that I look at in the book, that many of these uh, false truisms are, are, are things that... Uh, we might call them lies, Tom. We can be yeah, yeah. less polite on this show. These are but, but, but it, lies, and they, of course, impact dramatically on people's lives, especially absolutely. people who don't have political you know, a, a powerful political voice. It's all very well taxing Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, quite another when it comes to people who who, who need work in order to survive. Uh, absolutely. And 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 what's 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 particularly shameful and, and sad was that economists both on the left and right argued that minimum wages were bad for the poorest. And uh, th what happened was then, of course, in the 1970s, you know, people you know, doing more research and, and economics was becoming somewhat more empirical in the way that economists mean empirical, which, of course, means looking at data sets rather than looking at the world. But they started to look in, into, into employment data to try and see, well, the way in which, and try and establish and prove that minimum wages killed jobs. But they just couldn't do it. 
They couldn't find it. And in the late 1970s, Jimmy Carter convened a big commission uh, with a wide range of people of all political persuasions to examine the minimum wage and to really look at the evidence that existed so that in future, decisions on the minimum wage would be guided by fact rather than just political argument. And this, this commission and, and various re reports which were done based on, on that commission's uh, own report uh, basically said, no, we don't have any evidence. You know, they'd spent on today's money equivalent of $50 million, you know, going through all the evidence. They couldn't find it. The only place that the, they said they could find evidence of the minimum wages destroying jobs was for teenagers, people about 17, 18 years of age. Now, and even there, what they estimated was maybe if you increase the wage minimum wage by 10%, you might reduce employment by 1.5%. So, and that was up to 1.5%. So the, but, but despite that, people like Gary Becker, Nobel Prize winning economist in the, in the mid 1990s was going around telling people there was decades of proof of empirical evidence and data. I mean, it's clear that that these the Nobel case. Prizes, the, the idea of, I mean, the Nobel Prize in itself is, is I think, one of the worst inventions. Uh, but the worst part of the Nobel Prize is his decision to award it to economists because it seems as if most of the people, most of the economists winning the Nobel Prize are not very good economists. You, the subtitle of your book is How Economics Ruins the Economy, but it's not just the economy, it's society. You have another section in the book, um, Tom, dealing with whether or not we should have what you call a syntax. This is the Russell graph. Yes. Of an economist who was an expert in, 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 in the tobacco industry. Uh, do syntaxes work? Should we have them? And is this another area where econ economics and economists have ruined not just the economy, but society? Well, they've definitely not helped um, economic, or sorry, health policy in in many ways. Uh, the the idea of syntaxes is really attractive to people. These are seen as the most some of the most uh, popular taxes. For, so, what for it basically means is that you 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 put big taxes on alcohol yeah. or tobacco or, mm -hmm. or, or other or far, uh, or fizzy drinks or fast food, other things which supposedly are bad for for you. Absolutely, but there's one one screaming uh, economic contradiction in in this theory, and that is that the people with the most incentive to financial, with the strongest financial incentive to 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 respond to these taxes, respond least. So specifically, if you look at smoking. People who are less well off, who spend a high percentage of their income on tobacco, they tend not to respond so much to tobacco taxes, whereas affluent people are actually reducing their, their smoking in very large numbers, while um, you know, economists, would say, economists would say in response to these, these taxes. So, but it defies economic logic that people with a high financial incentive are not respond responsive and those with a low, low incentive are responsive. And, and in specific terms, I mean, here where I am in, in Southwest London, the borough has got smoking incidence of 6%. So 6% of people are smokers and it's an affluent uh, borough, whereas up in um, in Brands Home, in in uh, in the Hall, which I visited for this, you know, over 50% of people smoke. And this is despite the fact that that's one of the least least affluent places in in the UK. Now the 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 so the, this is something that clearly doesn't work. But the United Kingdom, you know, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, 
totally threw its weight behind syntaxes to tackle smoking. Um, it resisted even obligatory advertising bans and health warnings on cigarettes, and it went all in on tobacco taxes. Are you suggesting, Tom, then, that, uh, and this comes on to the next myth about regulation and the role of regulation, um, this, this debate about regulation harming economic growth, has the problem been this free lunch thinking over the last 50 years, very much part of the Reagan-Thatcher revolution, that regulation is always seem, uh, seen as harming economic growth? Absolutely. You know, regulation is seen as as restricting transactions and transactions are required to, to enable economic growth. So regulations are seen as sort of sand in the wheels of the mechanism that is the economy and removing regulations is seen as this massive unburdening and free lunch which allows the machine that is the economy to move more so freely. It's a Reagan ideology and... Uh well, it is, it's, a, it's a Thatcher reason, but what I would say is it is not only a, a right-of-center idea. So when, when we saw Obama come into office, he hired, as, uh, you know, as his regulatory czar, uh, Cass Sunstein, who is somebody who was... Who's been on yeah. the show, who's uh, yeah. the world's leading I, behavioral economist. Exactly. And he, he is somebody, so as I say, you know, put in place by a left-of-center um, president. Yeah. But of course, somebody who again says, no, you don't want regulation. Regulation he's is not, really I mean, he's one of the fathers of nudge economics. So Absolutely. He's in the idea of a syntax, I would think. Absolutely. And this is the thing. Whenever you ask an economist, whether it's a right wing, a left wing economist, how do we tackle this problem? The answer will always be a price signal because that's how, you know, the, the old demand and supply curve explanation of to, so for the, the I mean, it, it's sort of. Uh, it's an illogical absurdity that economists think like economists. So That's it. Get economic solutions to issues which have nothing to do with economics. So, well, it's it's a misunderstanding and a mass simplification of, of human nature. So, you know, one of you know, Cass Sunstein's talked about you know how to tackle the issue of 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 uh, CO two emissions via cars, and you know, he, you know, obviously for him, well, it would be a carbon tax. That was the best way to go, and rather he, than a tax on business. I, I want to move quickly, Tom. Yeah, sure, we're running out of time. But your final thesis that you attack the another economist, another famous award-winning economist, the idea that taxes uh, on business are damaging, you suggest that they're not, or that they don't have to be. Is that fair? No, I, yeah, absolutely. What, what I'm saying is this is one of the, 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 the big developments of recent decades, this idea that, that uh, corporate taxes are especially harmful to, to economic growth via the way in which they restrict investment. And again, this is one of the things where I say, right, okay, that's the theory is they're, they're, they're economic, uh, corporate taxes are bad for growth, corporate tax cuts are good for growth. And I said, well, okay, can we, can I, let's just look at the mechanism. How is this supposed to work? And um, the way it's supposed to work is by cutting taxes, you increase investment, you increase investment because the rate of return, the net rate of return goes up. And so when you sort of re really break it down to what the mechanism is meant to be, and again, if you look at those interconnections that are meant to make the mechanism work, they're not connected. And you don't see businesses reacting in, in the way that, uh, that economic theory suggests they should, which of course means that you're cutting economic taxes and you're 
giving up this money as, as, a, as a government in return for nothing. So we see countries like the UK, which tried the uh, the corporate tax cut thing, uh, policy before the United States did, and interestingly, by the time the United States was was had this, uh, you know, went ahead with its own significant uh, corporate tax cuts, the UK had had a decade or more of this and found that it just didn't work. Um, but it 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 is one of these things that is has been popular with on both the right and the left. I, I obviously it's more popular. Ta corporate tax cuts are more popular with the right. But left of centre governments have also cut. Yeah, and, and this is a, a subject for another show, Tom. But uh, I mean, it seems one of the things that's even more appalling is that the the more you cut corporate taxes, the more these corporations cheat anyway and don't pay anything at all. Uh, which is, as I said, a, a perhaps a subject for another show. One thing that struck me in, in terms of your observation of, of economists and the economics profession is they all seem to have one thing in common, apart from looking as if they've eaten too many free lunches. What do you think that is, Tom? I think that all of them have uh, a, a, an interest in maintaining... No, 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 let's stand back. Something okay. simple. No, 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 not yes. intellectual. When, when you look at all these pictures, okay. what do they all have in common? Well... Obviously, these particular ones are all white males. Yeah, they're all white that's, men. And, and one of the things that's appalling, I think, about the economics profession generally, perhaps academia broadly, particularly in America, is it's dominated by white men. Is it possible that there's a new generation, Tom, of, of, of female economists who are blowing up a lot of the assumptions? I had Stephanie Kelton, for example, on my show, the author of The Deficit Myth, which I think would probably agree, she would probably agree with a lot of the assumptions in the book. Uh, Kate Raworth's Donut Economics is another really broad and I think very convincing intellectual attack on, on, on the economics profession. Uh, Esther Duflo, she won the economics prize. You're actually yeah. quite sympathetic to some of her work in the book. Do we just simply need more female uh, economists? I, I I think that I think that there's definitely something to that, and I you know I do mention as you say Esther the flow in the book, and it's interesting the way that she describes what she does, and that is she says she 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 says it's akin to being a plumber, uh, somebody who comes up with solutions yeah. on an ad hoc basis to the problems. the The problem is with the other individuals which you just showed the pictures of. They all wanted to set these grand rules by so which falling into the same traps. You think uh, Kelton and Duflo, uh, Kelton and Rawworth. Well, K K two. I think obviously you know Esther Duflo has. Um, you know, as, as the Nobel Prize acknowledges, has really changed the way, you know, people do, th you know, do economics, uh, development economics, and also led to changes in policy. So that's why I think she really is a very important person. I think Kate is, you know, in, in terms of her book, I think it's, it's a great book, and I know Kate too. And I think she, you know, definitely makes a good, a good contribution. But I think what we do need are people like uh, Esther DeFlo who will go out and actually change the way things policies are made and i think that the the ambition that you know to be happy to be the plumber of the economy is sufficient plumbers do very good work people who want to be the people who are, are the newton of of human society namely people like milton friedman i think that's not particularly helpful i think that the attempts to do that have been so frequently very damaging. Yeah, very uh, so, 
I, look, I don't like Milton Friedman. Nobody does. He has become an appropriate punch bag on the left. The guy has, you know, he came up with the, the free lunch phrase and he looks as if, as I said before, he's eaten too many free lunches. But let's go back very briefly because I want to end this. We're way over time. It's so interesting, uh, Tom. Let's go back to that Keynes quote about uh, practical men who believe themselves to be exempt from ideology but are usually in enslaved by one or the other. Aren't we all ideologists for better or worse? Can you really have a plumber as an economist? Aren't even plumbers in, uh, controlled by some quantitative ideology that you can never really free yourself from theory? Or do you think you can? Even a, a woman like Deflo? I think that, that, that the more that you start with the world as it is, and by looking at the world, rather than by starting with theory and then trying to stand that up in, in, in data sets. I think that will help. I mean, I found it staggering that people can claim that millions of people have changed their behavior as a result of a policy without finding one single individual who, that has changed their behavior. Yeah, and it's particularly behavior. You, you, you met the, coming back to this syntax, the economist you mentioned, uh, the, the 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 behavioral economist what was his name uh the, the um Jad. no the, the behavioral economist the the Sunstein. oh yeah Cass Sunstein. Yeah, Cass Sunstein. Yeah. he's he must be in his 70s now he, he's still a professional squash player he is the most rigorously puritanical fellow on earth um married several times children all over the place clearly a remarkably self-disciplined person so people who come up with these nudge economic theories are, are definitely worth studying in themselves your book tom is a marvelous read free lunch thinking how economics ruins the economy i certainly urge everybody who who wants to think more clearly about economics in particular the biden people to, to read your new book um in addition Tom, to your new book, uh, Weird Times. You're in Southwest London uh, in early in, in early January to 2021. What else should people be reading in these strange times? Uh, well, actually, I've, I, there's a book that I, I I'm familiar with quite a number of things that are in it, but I haven't actually gotten uh, through it yet, is uh, a book by someone not quite my namesake. I'm going to take it down here. Uh, but uh, Tom Burgess, an FT journalist. Um, uh, Everyone yes, on this show eventually. Yes. <laughs> it's a uh, kleptopia and tom uh, and myself uh, you know occupy you know have some crossover in, in the subjects that we cover sometimes fraud illicit money flows things like that and uh, tom is particularly strong in africa which was his previous book this one is is more global and i'm looking forward to that and it's it's about uh, the various uh, criminal uh, activity that takes advantage of of the global financial system so i'm very much looking forward to uh, to really get my teeth teeth stuck into that. Yeah, and I think Tom Tom Burgess's analysis of free money definitely interconnects with your uh, argument of free lunch thinking. Certainly, the more free lunch thinking there is, the more dirty money. Tom uh, Burgess, uh, I want to wish you a very happy and healthy new year. I want to thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, I was so careful, Tom, and I made the error. Tom Berg. Pergin, not Burgess. Uh, Happy New Year, and we will have you back on the show uh, in the not too distant future to talk more about why econ economics and economists are not only ruin ruining economics and society, but the world broadly. Thank you so much.
Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.